0: If you have a Bible, we're in Acts chapter 1. How how many of you were aware that we were starting this book, Acts, this week? A few of you. Um, Pay attention next time. And everyone will be there. Acts chapter 1. I've never asked this question before either. How many of you like movies? everyone likes movies. Raise your hand. Um, I like movies, but I'm a particular kind of movie liker. I don't go to theater very often. Once in a blue moon, I watch them mostly at home on DVD. But the movies that I prefer, the ones that really strike a chord with me are movies that are true, like true stories with action. So somebody has to really get blown up in my movies for me to like it. Like this is a true story, so I can get emotionally. It doesn't even matter if the acting's poor. As long as I know it's real and true, I get emotional with it. And then, and then if there's action, right, cars are blowing up, something. I love that. Um, if you are that kind of moviegoer, if your version of preferred movie is reality and action, you're going to love Acts. Forty weeks, we get to look at a true story of the power of God showing up in the people of God. And radical things happen. From the get-go, people are changed and the world is turned upside down. And here we are now, 2,000 years later, still singing songs, getting chills because Jesus is real and he lives. Amen? So that's where we're going. 40 weeks, I want you to get ready for that. Um, And and I'll just throw out a warning ahead of time. How often do pastors warn you about their preaching? But I'm going to warn you, I'm going to make it uncomfortable. Super pushy. Because the scriptures in Acts depict a church I want to be. Like, I really want to be, I don't want to be just average, and I don't want to be um, comfortable. And that's scary because I'm comfortable, okay? So we're all going to be praying prayers and making decisions and things that make us a little bit nervous. But here we are in Acts, a, a wonderful, wonderful narrative story of the early church. If you look at your text, you'll see a title over the book, and it says, The Acts of the Apostles. Some would suggest a better title would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit or the Continued Acts of Jesus Christ. You, you get the point. This is the rest of the story uh, as far as the Gospels concern. concerned, okay? Power and wonder all, are all over this, this book. Before we dive in, we're going to deal with 11 verses this morning. Um, let me give you some background information. If you're a note taker and you like to know kind of context and what's happening and why, um, here's some of the background to, to this book. The author of the book is Luke, although Luke doesn't recognize himself in the text. We don't see his name here. He doesn't say, I, Luke, am writing to you, Theophilus, wonderful brother, and on he goes. Uh, He has classically and historically been known as the writer. Uh, Luke is a doctor. He's a precise writer, and and the language and and the style of writing kind of points to somebody like that, and so the church has always said Luke is the writer. Acts was written somewhere around 65 AD, and it covers 30 years of the church's beginning. So, if you like to know how things start and how they manage in the very front end of something, well, we get 30 years of the church right after Jesus ascends, which is a wonderful picture. And Acts also serves as a kind of a bridge text between the Gospels, Matthew. Mark, Luke, and John, these stories, these narratives of Jesus' birth and his ministry, his death and his resurrection, the gospels, and all the epistles, the instructions to the church and the prophecy coming, this this book sits between them, bridging the stories, okay? Does that make sense? In fact, you can even see the very first verse, he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, Luke referring to his gospel, the gospel of Luke, he says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, all right? And, and this book, this book of Acts, is what he continues to do and teach through the church by the power of the Holy Spirit, okay? So that's where this, is, where this fits. The, the book of Acts uh, has, uh, serves a couple of important purposes. One would be it is a great history lesson. To, to us, um, it shows us the founding of the church. It shows us the spreading of the gospel. It shows all these small church plants beginning, and wonderful things happen. The mission, the mission of Jesus around the world, it just keeps flourishing. And so we get to look back and go, "Wow, look at how it look at how it grew. Look at what God did with that that small obedience there, or that that kind of un." Important man there becomes the significant voice here and then, and look what happened with it. So we get to look back and see a historical perspective of this. But the other reason why I think it has an important, um, at least, purpose for us is it gives us a, a kind of answers and defense to our faith. You will see throughout this letter the apostles stand and give apologetic arguments for the exclusivity of Jesus. That these guys stand in front of the the leaders. And those with the authority to destroy their lives giving a defense for, it's Jesus. And they argue beautifully from from the scriptures, from Genesis through. Here is is the Savior, here is the Savior. And they keep pointing to Jesus. And so we get to kind of climb on their shoulders, as it were, and see a great defense to to our faith through, through their voices. But the other thing is, we share a lot in common with the culture in which this letter is written. I mean, cut me a little bit of slack, but you've got a... Greek pagan culture wrapped in oppressive Roman rule. If there's a way to homogenize the America 2017, we kind of sort of are, have moved over to like a a God is who? Who is God? Pagan kind of a every man for himself world. And if you want to talk about where Jesus fits in a world that doesn't even know the name of Jesus very well anymore, well, we're going to learn some really cool um, aspects of how to demonstrate argue and explain Jesus to people who aren't familiar with these things. These aren't familiar topics for our culture anymore. So we're going to share that. you have a lot in common with them. It points to us and shows us the church's role in this kind of culture. It, it, it shows us our behavior, the, the behavior of the saints in the midst of a culture that's going the other way from God. And it certainly tells us how to deal with people resisting Jesus in us because Jesus promised that the church would be persecuted. I read somewhere the other day, this is true, that the the persecution of the church, maybe not in Gilbert, Arizona, but in the world, is like double what it used to be just a few years ago. That it's getting ridiculous amount of persecution. Number one belief system in the world persecuted is Christianity. And we're talking persecution at the level of losing your life around the world. Now, that might be foreign to us particularly, but not not in, in our world. So we get to look at Acts and see, how did a persecuted bunch of believers respond to that oppression? How did they deal with it? So that'll be helpful to us. Um, this, this is going to be helpful to us, I think, serve a purpose to us, that it's a reminder and it's proof, as we study it, of the success of the church. Now, now let me define what I mean by this. From its witness as we see it in its narrative, from its growth that we see spreading around the world, we're going to see in this narrative the expansion of the church and the longevity of the church that we clearly experience now, 2,000 years later, we're going to be able to see oh, this whole thing called the bride of Christ is not a work of man. It's the work of the Holy Spirit of God. God did this. There's no way man could be clever enough or good enough or consistent enough to pull this off. If this was all just made up, this would have vaporized a long time ago. But here we are now experiencing the reality of salvation through Jesus alone. And we know that Jesus did something through the power of the Spirit. This is real. This, this, is, this is real and it's powerful to us. So we're gonna see all of that a work of God. So let's start in verse 1 and 2, and pick this apart a little bit. Here's what he says. Luke says in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. The book obviously that here is referring to is Luke, first book called the Gospel of Luke. It's where Luke told us about Jesus, the aspect of his life and the aspect of his words and his ministry, his call, his love, all of those things come out in that gospel. And now it's as if Luke says, okay, that's what he did. Now, let me tell you the rest of the story. If, if his books were movies and they had titles, the first written book of Luke would be called Jesus. The second would be called Jesus the sequel because that's what's happening over these 30 or, or 60 years if we include Jesus' life, okay? Here's, here's a great word picture. At least it helped me understand the, where Acts fixed. Someone, someone said of Luke's writings, his gospel and now Acts, someone said that the gospel of Luke was the lightning and Acts is the thunder of God moving in the world. I don't know what that does for you. It paints a picture for me. I've been in the mountains when lightning has struck. Have you? You're just kind of walking along and bam, a crack, and it scares you to death. But when you stop and listen, the echo just goes on through the canyons forever. And the sort of a picture I have when Jesus comes to this world to rescue men from their sins. It is so amazing what happens, but the reverberation of that work continues even to this day. And here we are now experiencing the echoes of the gospel of God through the world, Okay. I, I've told you this before that we have in, in Redemption Church 10 congregations. And because we all teach from the same text every week, we, we do this thing called the preaching collective, which is just every, every preacher that's preaching a pulpit in these 10 congregations plus other leaders who will and uh, other key leaders. We come together on a Wednesday and we study the passage we're going to teach in 10 days. Okay, so last Wednesday, we prep next week. And uh, so what we've done in the last couple of years is add to that by getting together one whole day and studying the book in one run. So, so this year we invited in, and we've been doing this lately, we've been inviting in some really key authorities in these particular texts to help shape our thinking and perspective on some of the stuff that we're about to teach. But this year we brought in Daryl Bach, who is the New Testament scholar and research professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. And he taught the book of Acts in eight hours. And I did it for you, okay? Because with my memory, there's no way any of that stuck. But one thing did stick. He said something in the very beginning. I could have gone home and had a sandwich after that because that's all I remember. Um, And I loved it when he said it, and I wrote it down. He said, the book of Acts is the description of the exceptional church. And I said, well, that preaches, man. Give me that. And I wrote it down. I said, we're going to ring that bell every week throughout 40 weeks of the study of Acts. It is a description of the exceptional church. Here's why it rung so clearly in my heart. Because God's gospel, this thing we confess, the things I watched you sing, I stand over there and I watch you, and I watch you put your hands in the air and express your devotions and affections for Jesus. I see it on you. You love the good news, right? You love Jesus. Well, this gospel that we declare and that we own and we sing about isn't supposed to be just a part of our life. It's not supposed to be a segmented place where it fits neatly in a file. This gospel is supposed to be our life. Top to bottom, side to left, it's all of it supposed to be who we are. This gospel, this isn't just a historical narrative, although it is a historical narrative. It's the description of the power of God on all who would call Jesus Lord and Savior. Okay, you didn't hear that at all. You're like me at hour five in the Acts day, okay? Let me back up and run at this again so you get it. This book is the description of the power of God on all who would call Jesus Lord and Savior. Okay, so when we're done with this, we're all gonna feel really uncomfortable. I'm, I'm not kidding, and I'm not trying to be a bully. This, this is gonna confront us because there's a virgin of American Christianity, comfort Christianity, that I can't find in the book of Acts. So I prayed and we'll pray through this whole journey that God would do what he has to do because I'm just gonna confess this right now. I'm not, a, I'm not a great preacher, but I'm committed. I have no interest whatsoever in spending 40 weeks informing you about what their faith was like, although it was true. I want us to be the exceptional church. I don't wanna tell you about one. I want us to pray and believe. I want us to see the work of God in our midst. I want us to know his power and to be his witnesses in the world. Everything and every page I turn, there is this some depiction of the exceptional church. I don't want to tell you about them. I want to tell you about us. Because we're the church. We are his bride. He died to give us life. And a life that's described here that's different than the life I'm living, it's totally different. So I want you to get ready for the push. And it's a loving push, okay? It's a loving push to see faith, the gospel, the good news, at levels and ways that we're going to come after some of the comforts, some of the personally held positions that we have. All of us, all of us in this room will see, hopefully, God willing, that there is a description of the church, okay? Okay? Because I believe the Christian life, and these are words that I've picked, they're not necessarily supernatural, but you're going to see why I've picked them. I think the description, if we tried to describe the Christian life, would be made up of words like passion, and commitment, and sacrifice, and service, and devotion, and love. And before you say, well, that's not my personality, I'm more chill than that. Um, I'm going to tell you, you can't hide behind your personality when it comes to the gospel. Jesus changes people. Ordinary people like Peter, who's scared of a girl who says you belong to Jesus, who would once cower and run, he turns into a champion of faith, a defender willing to give his life. Something happens to people when they meet Jesus. So if we're here going, I just want you to tell me about it, but I don't want you to interrupt me. I can't do that. Because we're coming back again and again to this this particular narrative that the story, the look of a Christian's life is is about passion and commitment and service and love and devotion. It's all those things. That is the singular description of what it means to follow Christ, okay? And I believe that to be true, and here's why. And I'll give it to you in verse 3. It's because our faith is fact not fiction. That's why it changes people. Verse 3, he, that's Jesus, presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Here's what we believe, and you're all going to say amen. Jesus died and rose again. That's right, and it's true. Here's what we get in one verse. One verse from Luke, he showed himself many convincing proofs over 40 days. It's true. Okay, in Luke's very gospel, he began that narrative by telling us, again, the evidence of the stuff he's about to tell them. He says this in in Luke 1, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from who with the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them To us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Here's the doctor doing his research. I looked at the evidence, it's there. It's all true. It's interesting to me that through the years, millions and millions and millions of people in history have given their lives to false religions and lies. Not to offend, but it is true. Jehovah Witness, Mormonism, Christian science, Scientology, Islam, all in all, just all different attempts to solve the problem of the spiritual void in a human's life. We're born that way, broken in sin. There's an emptiness. There's a cavern. And so we try to fill it with stuff and things. And so people invent their own versions of satisfaction and purpose in life. And here we are with all these absurd things. I don't know if you've been watching this A&E special with uh, Leah Remini on Scientology. Have you seen it? I haven't paid a lot of attention to it, but seven weeks, I think, now they've been going on. All I can do after watching one of these episodes is go, I don't get it. (laughs) I mean, even if you're gonna make one up, I'd make one up easier than that, right? I don't get it, I don't get it. If we're just gonna do this, why would anybody do that? Here's what sets biblical Christianity apart from everything else. Factual history. It's true. It's true. Christianity, the church, didn't begin with a bunch of people going, I got a theory. I've got a good idea. We can sell some books and make some money. It didn't start that way, Okay? It started because of the compelling facts of history. These men saw the miracles. They saw the blind man see, the spittle in the ground, wipe it on his eyes. He can see. We saw the leper's skin clean, the cripple walk and the dead rise. They watched it happen. They saw the seas calm under the presence of Jesus. They were there. They were eyewitnesses. They heard all of his teaching. They witnessed his death. And this is the kicker. They were shocked at his resurrection. So if you're inventing a story, like if you're just gonna invent, hey, you're gonna pretend to, die. And then you're going to, we're going to tell people he rose again. You wouldn't act so shocked at that outcome, but they were shocked because people don't rise from the dead. But Jesus did. That was the disciples. Christianity is the only faith in which the founder has risen from the dead. You want to, you want to mess up Christianity, just go after the resurrection. If you can somehow disprove it, Christianity goes away. But you can't. Hundreds of eyewitnesses over many, many days, it's some of the most authenticated works in history declaring a risen Jesus, okay? Uh, many, people, um, many people have tried to argue it away, but it is true. True Christian life is based on this fact of the resurrection and nothing else. Let me tell you this, that's certainly where passion comes from, if it's real, right? If it's real, passion just comes out of you, and it's true. Let me tell you something else where this new life comes from. It comes because it's empowered by the Spirit of God. This isn't man-made. Look at the text, verses 4 and 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Now he's talking about Jesus saying this now. But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Christianity is about life change. The, the power of the Holy Spirit to change people. If I simply said, tell me your story, <laughs> we'd run out of time. If we took every week of every year of the rest of our lives to tell the story of change, Just the people that call this home, we'd run out of time. Christianity is about life transforming power. The good news is simply this, God's power to save us and to change us. And that's what he does. That's what he's done for me. A lot of people are confused about, uh, and I don't want to judge us, so cut me some slack here. This time of year, everyone wants to come to church. I don't know if it's a part of a New Year's resolution. Let me just encourage you, don't quit. Come and hear Acts. Come and hear the life of a Christian in powerful ways you've never dreamed possible before. Come and see what it is to live this life and not just add this life to your busy world. Many people, when it comes to um, the issue of Christianity, are confused about what it means to be a Christian. They think, they might think, it's pretty common to think, here's what it is, be good. Try to be good. Try to be better. Improve yourself over last year. That's kind of what they would say. Let me just encourage you. Maybe this won't encourage you. (laughs) I don't know. Christianity is not about cleaning up your life. And you might have given your whole life to doing just that. But that's not what it's about. It's not about cleaning up your life. It's about God changing your heart. That's what Christianity is. Christianity is not about what you do for him. It's about what God has done and will do in you through the Spirit's power. That's what Christianity is. Okay? There's two particular things, if you want to remember this, that the Spirit of God does to make us different and new. One is he raises from the dead, and two, he empowers his people. (laughs) Pretty simple, right? You might not like the terminology, but the Bible says this about us, all of us. We are dead in our transgressions and sins. If we want to define what that means, it just means spiritually unresponsive. I don't give a rip about anything but me. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. I don't perceive Jesus as king, I don't serve him as Lord, I include him in some of the thoughts in my life, but he is not exclusive, he isn't the one and only, and I don't submit to anything or anybody, I'm spiritually dead. Well, here's what the gospel does and tells us about the role of the spirit in our life. He, first of all, raises us up from the dead by, first of all, showing us that we are dead and showing us that our need is that great, and then he brings Jesus as his solution. I don't know, I've never been really, really sick, so I have never spent time in a hospital, really, other than injuries, because I'm good at that, but never sick. I've never had anybody examine me and say, you know, there's something growing, there's something bad. But I gotta imagine, as horrible as that is to hear, it's better than pretending it's not true. If you don't submit yourself to the spirit Scripture and the Spirit's discernment about your need, and this is the hard part. this is the gory part. This has come out, out of a spiritual X-ray going, "Yeah, there's a cancer." and you're done." That's where this gospel starts. But here's how it finishes, and Jesus has its cure. You can look everywhere you want in the world, it won't work. It'll only fool you for a while. It'll rob your joy. Take your time, but Jesus alone will take your sin. Jesus alone will take your loneliness and your defeat and your disappointments. He'll take your fears and he will leave you love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, for the Spirit, right? That's what, that's what he'll do. He raises the dead and he empowers his people. He confronts us. As hard as that is, it's good. He confronts us and he comforts us and he encourages us and he teaches us and he leads us away from our sin and to his righteousness. Now, I say that so fast and you didn't even respond. If I say to you again, he takes all of your mess and empowers all of your change, what do you do with that? Yeah, maybe an amen, one. That's when you go, ow, yes. Can't get better than that. Okay, so this is going to be a little blunt. Remember I said I was going to push? If that is such good news, and it's so true, why don't we live like that power is ours? I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I have, I have a problem myself, clearly. I, I have to teach this, so I'm getting confronted every time I read a word. I'm convicted by this, my own self. Let me just turn it on me. Why don't I see this power in me? Why? Why do I get bitter at times, and why do I act like uh, I don't have enough information to obey? And why? Why do I? think there are other things worth my time and energy. Why, why, why do I struggle with power? Let me suggest to you a couple of things I think the scriptures just scream at us about the role of the Holy Spirit, this one who empowers the change and brings it about in our life. This Holy Spirit, the Bible says, that we can sin against him. One, and by lying to the Holy Spirit, let me tell you what that is. Here's the code. You wanna to lie to the Holy Spirit? Just pretend to be something you're not. Pretend. We're going to get to this in Acts chapter 5, but Ananias and Sapphira, there's a great story of pretending to be something you're not. Ananias and Sapphira, in a culture where the church was beginning, they were all selling their possessions and their property, and they were meeting each other's needs, and they all had everything in common. It was an awesome time, an awesome place. Well, this couple thought that they could pretend to be all in, but not be all in. So they came to the apostles and said, hey, we sold a piece of property. Here's all the prophets. Now, not that God required them to give it all. That wasn't even a disobedient issue. They pretended to give it all. How many of you in here today, don't raise your hand. This would be the place not to raise your hand. How, how many in here today are pretending in your Christian life? You know a lot. You've lived a lot. You, you can... You can quote a lot, you serve a lot, but if Jesus came in and said, well, let me, let me just peel back the layers, what would be left is this other person. I have to confess it's in me. It's so easy to pretend. It's so easy to pretend. That's lying to the Holy Spirit, playing the Christian game. If anything confronts that, this book's going to do it. These people are radical, crazy radical in love with Jesus, and I'm not. Other way we sin against the Spirit is is the text tells us we grieve Him. That's just code for sin. And let me just tell you this before you get scared. You you probably sinned on your way to church this morning. So I'm not talking about the, the way in which we struggle with our flesh and sinning. I'm talking about grieving the Holy Spirit like leaving a sin in existence. Living with the sin, calling the sin good, or that's just the way it is, or building a life around your sin and not repenting of your sin. That kind of sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Every one of us sin. What do you do with your sin? What? Easy. Repent. All the time. Repent. Grieving the Holy Spirit would be that. Some of us don't know the power of God because we've called bad good. We're living in sin, and we're not going to experience any of the power of God. There's another way in which we sin against the Spirit. The text says it's like this. We quench the Holy Spirit. In other words, self-sufficiency, doing things apart from God's wisdom and God's power and God's strength, relying on me. Hey, we got great programs at Gilbert. We've had things going on here for years. Just get plugged in and do what we do, and you're going to be good to go. We rest in us and our wisdom and our strength. Well, if you do that, here's what God gives you. He gives you that. He allows you to experience doing things apart from his power. Who wants that? But how easy is it for us to just kind of do what we know to do, get in the routine in our own strength based on our own programs and ideas, and we experience nothing that we're going to read in the text in the next couple of weeks. I don't know if this illustration works. It works for me. Um, I tried it on a Tyler and he had that confused dog look on his face, so maybe this doesn't work, but I've had people over the years ask me, how did your sons learn how to play music? I mean, they all are musical. They all drum and play guitar and all that kind of stuff, and I didn't have a system. I didn't i didn 't have i didn 't have the money to buy lessons because they 're ridiculous I just said well i 'll get you an instrument and i 'll play the radio. How about that? Just like music and see if you want to play the the pick an instrument i don 't know um, but but here 's the deal when I was in high school, I played guitar, and I thought it would be good for me to take theory i 'll go to the community college and and i 'll take you know lessons and i 'll learn where the notes are on the page and Every good boy does fine and face, F-A-C-E. You know, we've all done that, right? And it was French to me. It didn't matter what I knew. It didn't make any sense. And technique, you know, guitar technique, and doesn't work. I, here's where this illustration, whether it works or not, okay? When we rely on our own strength, it's like music lessons without music. You might know the stories. You might know the notes, and you might know where to place your fingers, but it doesn't sound good. I told my sons a long time ago, just know music. Just play music. Be musical. When you play music, people are going to like your music. That's how simple it is to me. Being empowered by God's spirit is like hearing the music. It's like forcing yourself to listen by prayer and dependency. He will empower it. Like... I'm not saying be ignorant of the truth. I'm not saying be ignorant of the service and the things that you do and that you know to do. What I'm suggesting to you is don't ever do it without prayer and dependency. That's the music. And when the music lines up with what you know, guess what happens? Power. Power comes out of you. Does that make sense? Does that illustration work? Should I ever use it again? Oh, whatever. Um, so we've seen this, our faith is fact, not fiction. It's empowered by God's spirit, not by our effort. Let me give you this. Our calling is to witness, is to be a witness of Christ to the world. Look at verses eight through, or six through eight. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It's the disciples again asking about the kingdom. Now, if you've been around for years, we went through the Gospel of Mark a couple of years ago, we've bumped into this repetitive theme with the disciples. Every time Jesus brings up the kingdom, the disciples' minds shift to something really pragmatic because in their minds, they're thinking, real kingdom. You be king. This is a political overthrow of Rome. We'll get positions of power and our country will be great. That's what they could think of. But Jesus wasn't referring to that kind of kingdom when he talked about the kingdom. He was referring to the kingdom of, of God that looked like this. Loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and your strength and expressing that by loving your neighbor, even your enemy as yourself. That's what this kingdom is all about, all right? It's the kingdom of broken people who've been forgiven of our sins, it's a kingdom established by the Holy Spirit that changes us, changes how we treat things, how we treat people. That's this kingdom. Totally different. Now, it's interesting to me. If you see Jesus' answer, in fact, it made me laugh when I read it. Here's what it says in verse 7. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times of the seasons that the Father is fixed. You want to paraphrase? None your business. That's the paraphrase. Not for you to know. And I thought to myself when I, when I read that, um, I don't know if I would like that answer. Like, couldn't you just correct me? Like, just tell me I'm thinking about the wrong kingdom? Can you just remind me of the truth again? But you just tell me, I'm not telling you. A couple of things rung true, at least thoughts, important thoughts, I think, some add-ons here that I'll leave you with. Every one of us asks questions of God. God, how long? How long should I suffer? How long will I suffer? How long will this sickness last and I don't have a job and my kids are on the run, my wife doesn't love me. How, how long? How, how long until I'm not the chucklehead in every environment and people disrespect me? How long? How long till I know enough and become enough? How, how long will it take? All I'm saying is you ask whatever question you want. I think that's good. But you gotta be okay with this answer. Not for you. Deuteronomy 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord. And I suppose if there's anything secret, it's what he's planning to do with me. Whenever he wants to do it. All I know is my response is I can ask and I should ask and I will ask. But I trust him, I hope in him, I believe in him, and now I, I obey him. That's that's the role of a believer. So just as a reminder, they ask and he doesn't answer. How many of you have gotten no answer? <laughs> All of us have. Doesn't change our response. The other thing I think that's interesting to me is that Jesus doesn't deny the disciples' expectation of a literal earthly kingdom. And we know, we know from other texts, that Jesus will return. He will restore all things. He will be the Lord of glory, and he is the Lord of glory, and we will see that. But... Until that day, Jesus says, let me tell you what the kingdom of God will look like right now. And that's verse 8. He says this to his disciples who asked that really good question. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of of the earth. All right? Um, Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses. What is a witness? What does he mean? What are we supposed to be? Here, here's one aspect of a witness. A witness is someone who says, I know this to be true. Speaking from experience. Now, I'm not suggesting that you are an apostle or that you are with the risen Lord or you saw the wounds in his hands or, or saw him in that way. I'm suggesting to you that you know who you were before Jesus showed up. I had someone ask me over uh, after the 8 o'clock, am I supposed to, how can I be a witness if I haven't? if I hadn't seen Jesus or I'd gone through the experiences that the disciples did. And I said, that's not what the experience is. The experience is pretty, pretty simple and yet profound, your life. Christian, here's the point. Here's the point. If your life declares the truth about Jesus but has never lived the truth about Jesus, this is where it's going to get awkward because you're not going to have a witness. You're not going to be able to say, and my life has changed. All you're going to be able to say is, I know a bunch of stuff. But when Jesus transforms our hearts and our minds, our lives look different. And then you say to people, I've been there. I thought that way. I lived that way. I I didn't believe and I hated and I did all these things and Jesus changed me. I mean, you can't help but look at these cowards, (laughs) these disciples prior to the Holy Spirit and not see that Jesus changes people. And that witness, your witness, your life your experience, that you've been with him, that this is a relationship and not a religion, that is a witness. A witness is someone who talks, not just talks to talk, but walks the walk. I'm gonna tell you about Jesus, but look at my life. Again, I'm not trying to scare you. This is not a perfected life. This is a consistent life. Confessing life, a loving life, a believing life, a joyful life, a giving life, a serving life. You get it? Not complicated, looks like what it says. It's interesting to me that the Greek word for witness is the same word we get martyr. Everyone knows what a martyr is. So let me just make the math easy here. I think what it means to be a witness is people who count the cost to follow Jesus. Now, I'm not suggesting that living in Gilbert that it's that complicated yet. But it could be. I mean, as crazy as this last five years has gone for me, I mean, in this world, some, somewhere, someone can say, not nah, anymore. I read somewhere, I think it was USA Today, that suggests that, again, that Christians are by far and away the highly, most highly persecuted faith group in the world. Not even close. Like, re- radically higher than anybody else. And in other parts of the world, it's unto death. Not here yet. Well, I'm just suggesting to you that This idea of witness in Jesus' mind, and I'm certain in the apostle's mind who knew what it meant to be like him and he went to the cross and died, meant, hey, this is going to be a little uncomfortable. This is going to cost us a little bit. And so this idea of martyr comes to mind. Okay, let me stop for a second and make a point. And it seems obvious, but I I just got to push on this. Being a witness... That Jesus commands us to be is not a choice you get to make. Jesus is not looking at the church from his distance of 2,000 years ago, going, "All right, here's what I might asking you to consider on that January Sunday in 2017. Why don't you think about being a witness? This isn't a decision you and I get to make. Everyone in here who calls yourself a Christian is a witness question is what kind what kind of witness are we are we the comfortable convenient spoiled rotten Christians of Gilbert or are we the broken hearted saved by grace alone no pride to stand loving open hands who will do anything that Jesus requires because of affection. What kind of witness are we? Does your life, does my life line up with the life of the master? Is it authentic or is it counterfeit? The message that we witness is the message of good news. Man's burdens, his sin, his disappointments, his longings are all dealt with in Jesus. Just think about this. You will meet someone today and everyone you meet has the same issues. And their only hope is Jesus. And you know that. And you know that's true. It is in Jesus alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, that they can be freed from everything in their life, from their own perpetrated failures and sins to the sins committed against them and the cluelessness and hopelessness that life kind of contributes to us. Jesus is their hope, and we know that. That's the good news. Nothing to join, no system to climb, no ladder, no rungs, no work to do, just a person to receive. That's good news, right, church? Please act like it's good news because it's good news. All right. So we're, we're done, and I've taken a few too many minutes, but let me just throw this in here because it's what the Spirit convicted me on. Do you see where we're supposed to witness? Verse 8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, other ends of the earth. Now, this is what shows up on a missionary map with a bunch of yarn if you've been in church long enough, okay? This explains our close near far. We're going to be here in Gilbert, we're going to be in Alaska, and we're going to be in Ethiopia. That's kind of our close near far. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other parts of the world. Let me suggest to you how the disciples heard this. Jesus says, you'll be my witness in Jerusalem. Time, time out. They, they killed you here. You're going to be my witnesses in Judea. They don't like us there. <laughs> Because every time we go there, they throw us out. You're going to be my witnesses in in Samaria. They're half-breeds. We don't like them. The other parts of the world, they're Gentile dogs. Listen, there is a reality, um, at least a, a, a truth, I think we need to emphasize here. Fairly easy parallel to make between what Jesus told the disciples, what they heard, and what he's saying to us today. We live in a really broken world, a world of division. I suppose, and I don't want to exaggerate, but maybe this rings in your heart. Of all the years of my life, 55 years, this year has seen more broken and divided between peoples than almost any time I can imagine. There is a brokenness to our world, race divisions, political divisions, ideological divisions. There is clearly religious wars going on. And you might say, well, that's just the way it is, and maybe, maybe so, but let me just make my observation. Do not fool yourself to think that the attitude of resentment hasn't strolled in here a time or two. Jesus has called you to love. He said, listen, go to the people you like to go to. Go to Jerusalem. Go where it's convenient and it's easy. Go down to Liberty Market and tell the waitress, great, great. But go across the tracks and tell the people of a different color. When you think, well, there's a little, little tension going on, let's avoid that. Or, or go across the world to religions who just want to do nothing but kill you. But you know their only hope is to have their eyes opened by Jesus. Go and tell the world it's confused like crazy about their origin or what they're supposed to be and what God's called them to be. And they're lost because they don't know. And tell them that Jesus is their answer. Tell them that. Go where you're uncomfortable. You remember when I told you in the beginning we're going to get pushy? There is no way. There's no way we're going to make it through acts if we don't come out different because we'll all quit. You might as well stay home and watch football unless you're willing, unless you're willing to say, Jesus, I'm not that person, but I want to be. It's what you've called me to. It's clearly what you call the disciples to, and here I am looking at it from your vantage point. I want that kind of love. Only you can do that in me. Do you believe that, church? Amen. Amen. I'm going to get back to verses 9 11 next week, but let's pray. Let's, there's a lot to pray about, a lot to ask God to do in us. Amen. Lord, I just ask for your power in us. Lord, I, I pray that you'll take these words, the words of power and change and transformation that you clearly have done through the power of the Spirit in our lives, and you shape us to be an authentic bride, a witness that loves like you love. You came to the broken, to the outsider to the indifferent, to the rejected, and you brought peace and hope and love. God, where our hearts are hardened, where there's resentment, I pray you bring repentance. God, that we would be like you. That is our prayer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.